Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 217 The Aesthetic of Meditation is Broken. We're joined this week by regular Buddhist Geeks contributor Rohan Gunatilika to explore how an emphasis on design can help make Buddhism more accessible and relevant. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. I'm joined today by Rohan Gunatilika. Rohan's a regular Buddhist Geeks contributor. He's a blogger at 21awake.com, and he leads the Edinburgh Festival's Innovation Lab in Edinburgh, Scotland. Rohan, it's great to have you here again. Hey, Vince. Great to be back. And we're going to explore one of your favorite topics, as I understand, and that's the area of design and meditation. And just to kind of frame the topic that we're going to be exploring, um, you have this great sort of provocative statement that you've been using in your writing on 21 Awake, um, that the aesthetic of meditation is broken. And we want to get into exactly how that's broken, talk about some of the different problems, and then also talk about some solutions. Because it's so easy, of course, to criticize something, but it's much harder to offer something that actually can solve those issues. So yeah, let's jump right in. How do you see the aesthetic of meditation being broken? Well, Vince, like you said, like it's a really provocative statement, and deliberately so, just to sort of get people really interested in started listening to the debate, I guess. But I, I tend to break this into three areas. So the way that the aesthetic's broken in sort of three main elements. So one is language. So the whole language around um, meditation, the words we use, the images that evokes in us. The second part is what I call look and feel. So that's what people might most typically think of when it comes to the word aesthetic. What are the visuals? What are the uh, symbols? that we associate with this stuff. And the third part is what I call delivery models. How's it being taught? How's it being expressed? I guess my provocation again is that all of those three elements just require attention because they're turning off as many people as they're exciting. I'd say, well, a lot more people than they're exciting. Maybe starting with the first one, language. This is certainly one that I'm well aware of, having been at Naropa and knowing a lot of translators there. There's always this question, in, at least in translation circles, of how do we start translating this particular type of language, whether it's Sanskrit or Tibetan or, or Pali or whatever the lang- original language might be, Chinese, etc. But I get the sense that what you're talking about is not just the actual translation of words. It's something bigger than that as well. Exactly. I think the technical translation is a difficult job and Specifically, when you look at the Pali text, I, I know the Pali text better than Sanskrit. And some of those words are just really hard to translate. And there is a lot of value in translating very sort of ancient texts into the vernacular uh, for access reasons. But there's a limit to which that's possible because of the way that languages work and don't work. But with regards language in the context of a broken aesthetic, I'd say less around the, the texts and more around the language we use when describing meditation generally outside of the text. And in a way that's quite closely uh, linked to look and feel, to sort of caricaturize it, 
the issues are they're almost generational. I'd really sort of point to the generational elements of sort of Western Buddhism to this that because so many of our teachers and the main teachers sort of came from a very particular generation, sort of hippie, post hippie generation, they grew up in that language, they learned the Dharma in that language. And so when they're expressing it, often, of course, they uh, will express it in that language. The problem is that for new audiences, if you like, that isn't the native language that they speak. And so there's a necessarily a, a sort of like a disconnect between what they're hearing and how people are translating it into their lives or really trying to find a connection with it. And this is, um, uh, all these sort of observations are based on my own experiences having practiced for five, six, seven, eight years. And obviously, because meditation and Buddhism and Dharma is so important in my life, I talk about it a lot. Eventually, if you get into conversation with me, I'll talk about something to do with this stuff. And a very, very common response I get is, oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I've always wanted to get involved in meditation or try Buddhism or find out more about it. But there's always a but and the two buts that I always come up against time and again is one is I don't have time, which is another issue we can talk about later with regards to living models. But the other but is that it's too hippie for them. I think that might be more of an issue over here in Europe than it is in the States where the American sort of middle class reader or person would be a bit more used to self-help language or sort of spiritual, if you like, type language, whereas that approach and way of talking about things isn't isn't really part of the culture here, and certainly in the UK, famously, obviously, with sort of our British reserve. While this is completely, like, valid ways of expressing oneself, it's not accessible to everyone. Speaking as a, you know, American practitioner and having spent a lot of time in different retreat centers around here... I don't know if the hippie thing is such an issue, but I can say for sure that there is some sort of issue because there are so few younger people practicing in these centers compared to the generation of the hippies and post-hippies. And like you're saying, there's some sort of but that's happening that's clearly keeping uh, American Buddhism, at least in the communities I'm familiar with, from really being translated in a clear way or, or expressed in a way that really speaks to our generation. So I appreciate you talking about the kind of generational issues around this. And then, you know, let's talk a little bit more about look and feel. Oh, yeah, this is my total bugbear. Because, again, this is a generational thing. Just that when, so I, I'm someone who I look after, have created half a dozen, maybe a dozen different websites to do with Buddhism and meditation in the last five, six years. And when you look at them, People always say, well, they don't, that doesn't look like anything to do with Buddhism. There's like pictures of a city. It's tend to, My aesthetic tends to be quite urban, quite busy, quite digital, basically because that's what my life is like. It's urban, it's busy, and it's digital. And so I'm expressing my understanding of the Dharma through what my life is like and through the aesthetic of what my life is like and the look and feel of what my life is like. But for some reason, people don't think that's got anything to do with Buddhism. And so there must be a reason why there's that dissonance between uh, why that is. And it must just be due to the fact that we've been trained to, we've grown up on a diet of lotus flowers, wheels, Buddha images, sort of still ponds being the sort of exclusive 
iconography of Buddhism. You and forgot I, um, flowers. Oh, no, lotus flowers. That was my number one. Oh, yeah, first lotus flowers. That's right. <laughs> really interesting anecdote, which was when I was living in London, I only recently moved up here to Scotland. I was part of the Insight Meditation organization there, um, London Insight Meditation, really great group of people, great community. They were particularly interested in involving me in the committee because they wanted to go through like a, a website refresh. And so I sort of took the lead on that. And we were picking out images for the homepage. And the images I chose were a London bus taken in that sort of photographic style where they're so taken over time, so it looks like a bit blurry. Pictures of the city, pictures of sort of activity in the city, and pictures of sort of parks in the city. When that sort of first set of images was shared with the group, there was really robust debate about this is a radically different image to yes. a London inside meditation. And I, I very much sort of stood my ground and said, look, actually, this is, this is London. London is it's, it's a world city. It's unreally busy. But... There were also pictures of St. James's Park and it still had that element of stillness, but in a London look and feel. It was it was a lovely deck chair image, I remember. And so we had this really amazing conversation. And then eventually I was able to sort of talk the committee around that we didn't need to... That London was as important in our identity as was meditation. Um, and so we stuck with those images. And what we found was the results were, A, we had a few of the community feel a bit sort of bristled by it. But what was most striking was that it just attracted new people. We, got, we just got new, more new people to our day-long retreats and our other sessions. And because the new website had more exciting booking functionality, the people who had problems were happy to, to deal with the images, given that they could now do online booking rather than just telephone booking. So everyone won in the end. Mm. Um, but that was a that was a nice little example of a real battle of look and feel that I went through. Yeah, and it's cross generational, and then also this difference between traditional Buddhist imagery and then more kind of urban imagery connected to the actual places that we live and practice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and then the third piece is kind of around more delivery models. You know, some of the traditional ones are obviously daily practice of some sort, formal daily practice. Intensive retreat practice is really common among all the Buddhist traditions I'm aware of. Geographically based communities where people are kind of practicing together like London Insight. Let's talk about delivery models. What part of that do you feel like is kind of aesthetically broken or or kind of non-functional? Sure. Well, I guess the first thing to say is that I love all the traditional delivery models. I do them all myself. I have a daily sitting practice. I've gone on more retreats than I'd wish upon anyone that I know Um, (laughs) and they're all really important and essential in the deepening of of one's dharma practice so absolutely no criticism of delivery models as exists but I just think there's more that could be done there's more potential because this all comes down to accessibility and relevance these are the things that feel really important so when again it's when people come and talk to me and say so I do want to get into it. What do I go and do? I can only recommend like sort of formal retreats, classes where people have quite long commitments, uh, sort of evening every week for six to eight weeks. And those courses are really great. But the reality is that not everyone can commit to that type of delivery model. Not everyone has the time. It's not just they have the time. Their lifestyle 
because our lifestyles now are just more more mobile and dynamic like for example so you said before i work in the arts with the edinburgh festivals and so on we've seen in the arts that if you look at how people are booking their concerts and plays and films and so on that they want to go and see until sort of 10 years ago people were sort of booking their they were going to see quite a long time in advance but now you ask any sort of uh, theater or cinema you'll see that people are booking events really late close to the wire because of the technology that allows us to do that and so on and so people are living in a much more sort of real-time way so we have to i think recognize the changing lifestyles of people and start to design delivery models which provide different ways of people to get into the dharma which dharma never becomes irrelevant i just think the delivery models can become irrelevant great maybe shifting gears now we've kind of identified some of the issues or some of the problems we also want to talk about the solutions or at least some potential solutions that could open up a broader conversation because obviously we haven't figured this stuff out it's something that's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of collaboration, I guess, to figure out. And it's not going to just take people who are in these industries, but it's also going to take the people that we're trying to serve. So, yeah, let's open it up to solutions. Like, how do we approach oh, some of these issues? I think you've really hit the nail on the head in that it's not just about the people who understand meditation and Buddhism already to know what to do. I think a really important direction for this Innovation really is what I'm calling for, is to involve people who actually involve users, if you like, in the design of the delivery models, in the design of the language, in, the, in conversation about what is the most appropriate language. Okay, so the way things are typically done is that a teacher or a Buddhist or meditation institution or a bunch of teachers decide that they're going to put on a course or a class and then they design the course or class, maybe just by sort of feedback from what they've done before, or they start really sort of think about, actually, I learned it like this, but uh, I'd like to express it in a slightly different way. And so they, they design the, the course or class that they want to give. But very rarely are actual users involved in that design process. They might maybe do feedback forms at the end, which is all fine and lovely, but it's a missed opportunity in that we could be designing meditation classes with people who want those services. So when I meet people who say, oh, I'd love to do meditation, but they're the people we should be engaging with. And this is actually something that really sort of, I guess it gets me upset or it makes me feel a bit sad that it's really brave and rare and beautiful and courageous for someone to take the step of turning up for a class turning up for a course it's really rare and yeah really rare and sort of courageous thing to do it's recognizing sort of the need for development it's recognizing a certain amount of vulnerability and then they turn up and it's all purple patchouli and woo-woo language and suddenly that person's sort of openness and interest has been blocked not by the dharma but by the the look and feel and the language um, the delivery models again. So again, the aesthetic has stopped that person really drinking deeply from the potential that they could. And that's heartbreaking, really, because I know how hard it is to go on a retreat or to a class or 
whatever, or even open a book, and then to not feel included or to not feel like it's for me. So we really should just start with those people. Let's start with the people who want to learn about this stuff and let's design it with them and for them. And what's exciting is that this type of approach, so lots of different types of jargon, if you like, used to talk about this stuff. People call it co-design. Some people call it co-production. Some people call it uh, co-creation even, uh, user-led design, another sort of geeky term for it. All it means is really involving the user all the way through the process of design. And what that means is that you get a really efficient use of resources because what you're creating is exactly what people need. You get an engaged community of people who, because they've helped design the course, of course they're going to take the course and they're going to evangelize and help your marketing or help spread the audience for it. Um, and we're seeing this approach being used all over the place in sort of product design. In the UK here, we're seeing it. It's really amazing. We're seeing a lot of it being used in public services. So the way that health services are being designed in the UK, the way that social services are being designed in the UK are involving citizens and local communities really directly with designers to do this. And if the National Health Service in the UK can do it, which is a really classic, complex, bureaucratic, massive organization, then surely the Buddhist world can do it too. So taking this kind of idea of including the user in the design, you know, I know one typical response to that or one tension that comes up, and I felt this in myself too when I thought about it from the perspective of teaching meditation, is how do we ensure that the depth of what we're presenting doesn't get watered down as Buddhist communities in the co-design process? In other words, what are the, the techniques one uses or the ways that one ensures that we're not just sort of letting people design something that is actually not the deep spirit or deep essence of Dharma? I'm wondering how that works in this process. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I think the answer to that is making sure that that process involves someone who's really owning that deep meditation expertise and understands it really well. So who, who has the ability to notice when something is sort of out of scope and in scope. So we're essentially talking about three people, three types of people involved in this process. One is the designer, one is the user, and the third is the, the holder of expertise. I could design a health system with a designer, but if it's got no chance of ever being used because of sort of core legislation or regulations, then it's pointless. So we need someone in that triangle who really understands the depth of that particular context. And so in this case, it'd be a meditation teacher. So, yeah, it's a really important issue, the sort of dumbing down and maintaining the integrity of the Dharma. But I think, I think that can be solved by really strong having really strong teachers involved in this process. Mm, cool. And then in terms of solutions, again, we it's interesting because you're doing a really cool project right now called Buddhify, and it's very specifically an attempt to kind of answer some of these questions to resolve some of the buts that come up for people when they're being introduced to meditation. It, it looks at the delivery models, it looks at the language, at the look and feel. You know, It's a mobile application that you're developing. And I know it's early to talk about, but I wanted to sort of pick your brain about this because it's a great practical example of one person, in this case you, uh, really trying to take into account some of these dimensions. 
Sure. Well, yeah, I'll, let me tell you a bit about the Budify story. So Budify came from what I was talking about before was when people came with me with these two barriers to entry with regards to meditation. One was the hippiness and the other was that they didn't have time. So I've been sort of uh, in and around the design scene in various sort of contexts here in the UK. So I'm not a designer uh, myself, but I started thinking like, what would a designer do with this problem? Because these are design challenges, the lack of time and the perceived inappropriateness of the aesthetic. Obviously, the solution to that is present a meditation training or meditation service in a vibrant, contemporary way. So with fresh language and a sort of appealing visuals. But most importantly, is looking at the delivery model piece. So people say they don't have time. So that means they can't go to classes and courses, especially if they just want to sort of dip into meditation, find out a bit more about it. So because I've been working in digital innovation for the last two, three years, I started thinking about mobile apps and obviously the boom in mobile applications through the iPhone and Android platforms. And I'm sure many Buddhist Geeks listeners are uh, have smartphones and use apps either really regularly or fairly regularly. And importantly, this is the people who I was talking to who were having these problems were sort of smartphone users. They were that demographic, 25 to 40, urban, quite well-to-do, and so on. The solution I came up with is basically what Budify is, which teaches meditation but on the go. So it breaks a, a rule of meditation teaching. Meditation teaching normally tells you that to learn a meditation, you go to a course or class and learn it through that. Maybe you do it at home as well. But the place where you learn meditation principally is in a quiet, sort of supported environment. And then when you've, when you've developed some skills and some stability, you can then take that meditation and apply it to the rest of your life, uh, wherever you are. Um, that's sort of fairly standard rules of meditation teaching. But if I turns that upside down and says, uh, you can learn meditation while you're out and about, but if I only works if you're at the gym, if you're commuting or if you're walking. And the reasons it only works there is because they're the three places where people listen to their MP3 players. And so all the Budify has to do is convince you, Vince, to listen to Budify as opposed to Justin Bieber or whatever you're listening to these days. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> because we found that the, the people are finding it really hard to come into a class or course to learn meditation, but if they could learn meditation in a way that really suits them, in a way that's sort of bite-sized, quite playful as well, um, then maybe that would work. But if I basically uh, reverse engineers meditation teaching by saying, first you learn it out and about, so whilst walking and at the gym and so on, and secondly, if you want to really consolidate it, you do it at home by yourself. Nice. So we'll make sure to you know put the word out when that comes out because I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing an example of how that works. And of course, for people that are already Buddhist practitioners, already have like an established practice and things like that, you know, this may be interesting to experiment with. But it really is designed for a different demographic. Yeah, yeah. So and cool. um, and I think this is where the potential for sort of innovation in Buddhism and meditation is: is that. Like you say, people who have an established practice, we work all out all this stuff by ourselves anyway. We make it work because we care about it. We see the value 
Um, and so we just do it. If we don't care about it yet or see the value yet, then we won't do it. And so um, I talk about, this is a visual metaphor, so I'm not sure how it will work over the podcast, but I talk about sort of widening the funnel of ways people can access meditation. So there'll only be a small number of people in the world who do really, really hardcore, long-term, those sort of three-year retreaty type things or really hardcore practice. And there'll be more people who do the sort of mindfulness-based approach, who do mindfulness courses and so on, and be loads more people who read books about meditation. There's like a funnel of level of sort of hardcoreness of practice and the number of people. And so what I think we have the potential to do by working on the aesthetic is to really widen the funnel. And Buddhify is one way in which I'm trying to help that conversation happen of making more and more accessible but authentic ways of getting involved in meditation so that in time people who really who really want to go down the rabbit hole further can then explore and start pulling that thread join us for the fourth annual buddhist geeks conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.